And um, before we actually look at the scriptures to see what they have to say about this person that we're going to be looking at this morning, I wanted to give you a chance to just chime in, chime, just call out what you know about this this character. He's a very famous character. If I said his name out loud, you would instantly have an image in your head. And so I'm just going to say it. If I say the name John the Baptist, what do you think? What is your initial thoughts? Prophet of the Lord. A prophet of the Lord? What do you see in your mind's eye? He baptized Jesus. He baptized Jesus. Yeah, I see him down at the river Jordan. Behold the Lamb of God. A voice in the wilderness and the one standing along the Jordan River saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See a wild man? Yes. Wild hair and wild clothes. Eating honey and locusts. A wild man with wild hair and wild clothes eating honey and locusts. Not the kind of person I need to be drunk. No, I don't think so. He did have a leather belt. He thought of himself as unworthy to baptize the Lord. Yeah. Anything else? A straight talker. I think he flowered up his words. Straight talker. He didn't flower up his words. And what did you say? His sooth, his birth was a supernatural miracle. Well, that's, that's, thank you, because that was the very first thing that I wanted to look at. The very first thing that we know in, from the scriptures about John the Baptist was that he recognized Mary's voice, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because if you remember, we just went through the Christmas season. So you should, all of these stories should be very, very familiar to you right this moment. If you remember when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, there was a scandal for her to have been an unmarried woman be pregnant. And so her family sent her to live with her cousin, Elizabeth, and her cousin's wife, her cousin's husband, Zechariah, who was a priest. And if you remember, Zechariah was uh, it was his turn to offer incense in the tabernacle, or yeah, in the tabernacle, in the temple, excuse me. And while he was doing that, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and said, you and your wife are going to have a child. And Zechariah didn't believe him. He said, I'm old, and so is my wife. How in the world is this going to happen? And so Zechariah said, I mean, so Gabriel said to Zechariah, because you didn't believe me, you will be struck dumb. You will not be able to uh, be able to speak. Until the child is born. And then when the child was born, uh, Zechariah then indeed spoke again and they named him John. But while John was in utero, while he was a, a baby in his mother's womb, he heard the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he leapt for joy, it says. And it caused Mary, Mary uh, Elizabeth to proclaim a, a prophetic utterance as well. So there was a miraculous thing about John from the very, very beginning. And then the next thing we see in John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, standing along the banks of the Jordan, a wild man that nobody wants to approach, the one that's accusing everyone and accosting everyone. But we don't know anything about from the time of his infancy and his birth, I mean, his, 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 his gestation and his birth until 30 plus years later, 33 years later to be exact, 
when he's out doing his ministry. All we know is that he lived in the desert, in the wilderness during his young adult lives. But I always had this thing in my mind. If Mary was a cousin to Elizabeth and once a year they had to go to Jerusalem because we do know that they did that. Because Joseph, we have the story of Joseph and Mary and Jesus at the age of 12 going on their annual trek to Jerusalem. And Jesus ends up staying in the temple discussing theological matters when the family leaves with the family caravan to head back home. So in my mind, there had to be interaction between the cousins. Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. They knew each other. So it would make sense to me that Jesus and Joseph, I mean, excuse me, Jesus, Jesus and John would have known each other as children because John was only six or eight months older than Jesus. And so in my mind, I can, I mean, I was just looking at pictures this morning because I was preparing for a children's sermon in case I had a bunch of kids I needed to talk to. And I was looking at the pictures of our gathering at, in Hawaii a couple of years back for Thanksgiving with all of my grandkids and my kids and, and even some family friends. And we were just all enjoying our time together. And I was just watching that and looking and I thought, that's exactly what Jesus and John would have done. Just hung out together as kids and played and enjoyed each other's company. So turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 13, I think it is. No, 31. John chapter 1, verse 31, and then 33. Because it's weird to me that John would say this. But in John chapter 1, we're given the, the beginning of John's ministry. It's 30, John chapter 1, verse 31, and then, then again, verse 33. We're going to start at 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. Now. I have to confess to you, when I read those verses, not just this week, but the, years ago, I was like, how could he not know? They had to have talked about it when they were kids. Hey, John, this is so cool. When we get older, I'm the Messiah, and you're the prophet. Let's practice. Let's play. You know, I, I, I just pictured that as, as kids, that that's how they interacted with each other. You know, when they were on these family visits and when they were out on the trek to Jerusalem once a year. But John himself said he didn't even know who Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah until he saw the Spirit of God rest on Jesus after Jesus' baptism. And I was like, so did Jesus know he was the Messiah? I think he did. But maybe it wasn't appropriate that he talk about it until it was time. But John, for whatever reason, all we can take is the scriptural uh, testimony. John did. He was a relative of Jesus. 
He likely knew Jesus as a boy. He likely hung out with Jesus on various times throughout the year. But John did not know the plan of God during his growing up years. It was only after John went out into the wilderness and God basically put the call on him and said, you're going to be my prophet. You're going to be the one who is that voice of one crying out in the wilderness, making ready the way of the Lord. And you will know who it is when you see the spirit of God resting on him and staying on him. So that says to me that John recognized when God's spirit came on somebody because he would have to know that it was. But in in addition to that, can you imagine John seeing Jesus come down to the water and he says, I I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, let's just do the right thing. Let's just do this because, I mean, I I, I can't say, because I always have the, the King James in my head and I always get it confused. But the bottom line is, is Jesus said, look, this is right. It's appropriate. You baptize me. And and we're told in the scriptures that when Jesus came up out of the water, God literally said, well, let's let's just read it. It's just a couple couple verses ahead of us right here. Well, maybe maybe it's not. Maybe it's in John. Maybe it's in uh, Matthew. I've read Matthew and Luke and John and Mark, so I'm getting them confused in my head. Let's go back to Matthew. Sorry. There it is. John chapter Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 through 17. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, "I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me?" But Jesus answered him and said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's the statement I can never get right. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Another way of saying that is, this is my son, and I love him. And I am so proud of him. He, he, has, he has pleased me very well. But anyway, John, in that moment, becomes aware that Jesus is the Messiah. He is fully convinced. He is fully invested. This man has answered the call of God. He literally gave up anything and everything of his own and to follow the call of God. He went out into the wilderness. He became a man of prayer, a man of meditation, a man of duty. He confronted all of the evil in his world. He did not have a a problem with standing up in front of the religious leaders and calling them a brood of vipers. He didn't have a problem with being that person that nobody wanted to be around. He didn't have a problem with it because he knew who he was in God. And he knew that he had a promise from God. You are going to know when you see the Spirit come down and rest and stay on him. This is my Messiah. And you are preparing the way for him. You do this. So he's fully invested, fully aware, fully knowing that this is what God is going to do. And then it happens. And it's his cousin Jesus. Woohoo! That's just icing on top of the cake. But the reality is, in that moment, he he had the word of God fully, fully, 
fully confirmed in him and he was fully convinced. And then he said to his disciples, if you read the different areas, I think it's in chapter 3, either of Matthew or of Luke, where it says the disciples get upset. The disciples of John get upset because they say, Jesus, the one that you baptized, that you saw the dove come down on, he's now baptizing and people start to follow him and they're falling away from you. And what was John's response? It's the right thing. I have to decrease. He has to increase. This is the way of God's plan. I am going to just fade out of the picture now. I've done what I was called to do. And Jesus is now going to raise up in the mind's eye, in, in, in the eye of the public. He is going to raise up into his ministry. I did what I was supposed to do. And then we still see John still being that rasty, nasty person who doesn't have a problem calling out people. He doesn't just fade off and do nothing. He ends up confronting Herod himself. You have no business being married to the woman you're married to. This is an adulterous situation. Now, did he go to the king and get in his face? Probably not. He was probably publicly declaring it and word got back to Herod. But the Bible tells us that Herod had Jesus, I mean, Herod had John the Baptist arrested and he wanted to kill him, but he was afraid to kill him for fear of what the people would do. So he just had him put in prison. And then there comes a point where his daughter, Salome, begins, is dancing and performing at a, at a big celebration of his. And he's kind of drunk and he's having a great time. And she's pleased him so much. He says, I'll do anything for you, sweetie. Just you name up to half of my kingdom and I'll give it to you. Just tell me what you want. And she goes, ooh, what do I want? So she runs to her mom. She says, what do I want, mom? And her mom says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So she comes back and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And King Herod's like, crap. He has no choice. He's already publicly said it. And so he sends to the prison. John is then beheaded and they bring his head in a platter. He presents it. It's presented to the girl who then carries it. This is a grisly, grisly image. Carries the head of John the Baptist to her mother and says, here you go, mom. And then the disciples of John come and take his body and I'm assuming that they got his head too and they buried him and they honored him and that's the end of his life but there's one part that we skipped over it's been in front of you all morning long turn to Matthew chapter 11 Matthew chapter 11, verses 1. Well, it's pretty much the whole of chapter 11, but 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison, see, John's in prison. When John heard while in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is of whom, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So so John is in prison, and he hears about all that's going on about this Jesus, his cousin, who's raising up in stature, and he's hearing all about the different uh, miracles that are going on, and he literally says to his disciples, I want you to go seek him out, and I want you to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What? This is the man who had a direct word from God himself. The one on whom you see the Holy Spirit resting and remaining. He is the one. He is the one that is all about your ministry. And so John proclaims it in boldness. He is the one. He must increase. I must decrease. But now, months later... Years later, we're not given the timeline. There's this creeping and nagging doubt. Are you the one? Or or, or are we supposed to be looking for somebody else? And it just, it, it seems so wrong. I just, it seems so wrong that he would even think those words. And how did Jesus respond to him? Jesus, well, first of all, Jesus wasn't talking directly to John. His words to the disciples were, take this back to him. Words of logic and reason. What is the evidence? What is it that you're hearing? What is it that you're seeing? Talk to him, tell him about the different things that are going on in my ministry. Tell them about the fact that the gospel is being proclaimed. Tell them about all of the miraculous things that the Father is doing through me. Give him that information. He didn't say, yes, I am. I would have expected that. 
Of course I am. Tell him that. Tell him I am. There's, he has nothing to worry about. Tell him I am. See, Jesus didn't do that with John. This last great prophet of the Old Testament era, the voice of one who's crying in the wilderness, the one who all of Israel was expecting this Elijah to come, Jesus didn't give him a flat yes. He gave him evidence. He gave him the responsibility to look and choose for himself. But he didn't call him out on it either. He literally raised John up. He proclaimed to the people around after John's disciples left. He said, there is no one greater in all of the kingdom of heaven than this John. But he's walking in Old Testament knowledge. You're now walking in New Testament knowledge. He didn't use those words, but he intimated he said, so even though John is the greatest, the one who's the least in the new heaven and new earth, the new kingdom that's coming right now, the kingdom of God, is even greater than John because you believe and you're going to do even greater and more powerful things than John ever hoped to do. And John was great. But the words that he said to John's disciples to bring back to John were, what do you think? What do you think? Is everything you believe true? Are you going to walk away from everything you've known and everything you've held on to now that it's dark? Now that things are not good? Now that you no longer have the freedom to go around and do whatever you feel like doing? Now that your life's in danger? Are you just going to stop believing the foundational things that you've known? What is your foundational, I mean, what is the foundation of your belief, John? As I was um, preparing this sermon, I'm sorry? Right. That's right. One of the uh, one of the books that I have on my desk is a book called Devotional Classics: Selected Readings for Individuals and Groups. And I don't refer to this every day or every week. Um, it's just whenever I feel led to. But it's it's one of those things that during my devotion time I keep it there. And this particular reading is about a person whose name is Evelyn Underhill. And the subtitle of this top of this chapter is called What Do We Mean by Prayer? And um, just a little bit of background. I, I know the name Evelyn Underhill, but I never really knew who this person was. Let me just read quickly a little bit about her biography so you'll know who she is. Few women of the 20th century have done more to further our understanding of the devotional life than Evelyn Underhill. She was born in 1875. She died in 1941. Her scholarly research and writing have helped saints and skeptics alike in the study of religion and in spirituality. She was educated at King's College for Women in London. She spent much of her time writing and lecturing. 
But her enduring contribution comes not from academic achievements, but from her personal insights into the devotional life. After a religious conversion at the age of 32, she practiced this devotional life with great intensity. Her personal spiritual journey intersected with her intellectual capability, producing the much-needed combination of authentic spirituality and academic integrity. And as a result, she was highly sought after as a spiritual director. In addition, she became well-known as the conductor of retreats in various Anglican religious centers. And in this particular chapter, the authors of this book, the editors of this book, uh, have taken from her writings, and they hit, in it she describes the inner mechanics of prayer, shedding light on the place of the mind, the emotions, and the will in the life of prayer. And there's this one paragraph that really spoke to me, and as I was reading it, it was as if God was saying, this is, this is part of your sermon, Bob, and I want you to bring it in. So I need to read this one paragraph to you so that you can have an understanding and a basis from where the rest of my my thought is. Prayer should take up and turn towards the spiritual order all the powers of our mental, emotional, and volitional life. Prayers should be the highest exercise of these powers. For here they are directed to, to the only adequate object of thought, of love and of desire. It should, as it were, lift us to the top of our condition and represent the fullest <coughs> excuse me, flowering of our consciousness. For here we breathe the air of the supernatural order and attain, according to our measure, the communion and reality for which we were made. Now, intellect and feeling are not wholly in our control. They fluctuate from day to day, from hour to hour. They are dependent on many delicate adjustments. Sometimes we are mentally dull. Sometimes we are emotionally flat. On such occasions, it is notoriously useless to try to beat ourselves up into a froth, to make ourselves think more deeply or to make ourselves care more intensely. If the worth of our prayer life depended on the maintenance of a constant high level of feeling or understanding, we would be in a dangerous place. Though these often seem to fail us, the the reigning will remains. Even when our heart is cold and our mind is dim, prayer is still possible to us. Our wills are ours to make them his. The determined fixing of our will upon God and pressing toward him steadily and without deflection. This is the very center and the art of prayer. The most theological of thoughts soon becomes inadequate. The most spiritual of emotions is only a fair weather breeze. Let the ship take advantage of it all by, of it by all means, but do not rely on it. She must be prepared to beat to windward if she would reach her goal. And I, I struggled with that last sentence, and I, I, the, the image that I get is, I guess, when there is no wind and when there is no sail, I mean, no, nothing to fill the sail, and there's no current, and you're just in dead water, how do you get where you need to go? And they have the, 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 the rowers who row to a beat 
stroke, stroke, stroke. And there's an intentionality of getting to where they need to go, whether there's wind or not, whether there's current or not. They just intentionally set their, set their course and they make it happen if they have to. And so as I reflected on that and then and kind of tied it in with John, I know in my own life and even this week for me, there is, there are times when I am just on cloud nine spiritually. I mean, it just, it's like, well, was it last Sunday that Roy said, man, we've been in church. Well, you know, my thought was this morning, man, it's going to be tough to have church this morning. I'm so distracted. There's a dead moose laying out in the the parking lot. And there's all this stuff going on and it's cold and I've had a really tough week. It's going to be really tough to get myself ready for, to enjoy service and to really engage in worship. And truly, as the songs were going, I was struggling just to stay focused on the words, let alone enter into worship. And it wasn't because I didn't want to be here. It's just, I didn't want to be here. I would have much rather just stayed in my pajamas today and just been warm in my own home and not have to get up and do anything. But you wouldn't have paid me if I didn't come. (laughs) So I had to get dressed and I had to come over here. And then Ruth calls me in the middle of it all and says, you got to get out here right now. We need flares. (sighs) (sighs) Why don't you have flares in your own car? (laughs) <laughs> well, the only reason I had flares is because my wife gave me some for Christmas because I said, I need more flares. <laughs> so now I need more. Yeah. God, stupid moose. But the reality was, quite honestly, I came over here today not wanting to be in church. I came over here not wanting to, I don't feel it. It's not, it's not just not there for me. But the reality is, I choose to be here. I chose to come up. I could have called and said, I don't feel good. Which would have been true. But I chose to be here. I intentionally used my will to come and engage in worship of the Father. And the same thing can be true in my time of worship in my private life. I don't necessarily have to have an emotional high. And I don't necessarily have to have all of the deep, rich thoughts Those are great when I have them. But the reality is every day or at least on a regular and consistent basis, I need to be engaged in worship and study of the word and prayer. And I honestly think that's what Jesus was saying to John. I really do. He wasn't chiding him for being down. Of course he's down. He's in prison for heaven's sakes. It's dark where he's at. The only way he gets any support is because his friends bring food to him. And if he has a coat or a blanket, it's because his friends bring him a coat or a blanket. Otherwise, he'd be sitting in a dank, dark cell all by himself with no way of supporting himself. His emotions probably did this all the time while he was down there. And he probably didn't think really deep thoughts other than, I wish I could get out of here. So it was probably very realistic to think that he would reach a point spiritually where he'd go, did I miss it? Did I, did I somehow 
get the signals crossed? I mean, I know what I said, and I know what I believe, and I, I know what I experienced, but <coughs> did I somehow not, not get it right? And so literally, in that point of his, I don't want to say depths of despair, but in that point where he was struggling, he reached out and he said, is it real? Is everything that I've said real? Come on, Jesus, give me something to hold on to. Because this is really tough right now. And it would have been so nice if Jesus had just simply looked at him and said, of course it is, John. Stop being stupid. But instead, what did Jesus do? Jesus just pointed him back. What does the scripture say? What is it that you're seeing? Is everything that you knew happening? Is everything that's been proclaimed to you happening? Is the gospel being proclaimed as you knew that that's what was supposed to be happening? Now, there is that idea that the Messiah was going to come and throw off the Roman rule. And I don't want to get into any of that because I don't know what John's theology was. I just know that for whatever reason, at whatever point, John was at a very low point in his walk with God. And he needed some help. And when he got, when he reached out for help, what he got was not, not help. But it wasn't an easy help. It was a go back to the very foundations. Go back to the very base of what you believe. Is everything holding true? Are you seeing what you believed? Is it happening the way you thought it was supposed to happen? No, but is it happening? Yes. And so John was given an opportunity to go back and chew on and meditate and pray and recommit. But when he didn't feel it and when he struggled with his thoughts, he still had his will. And he could just... I love the expression that Renee temperately uses. Hunker down. And just... I know that I know that I know. And if nothing else, I'm staying where I'm anchored. I'm not going to let anything else take me away from this. And then slowly get yourself back up out of the darkness. The emotional, the psychological, the spiritual darkness that you're in. But it's an intentional thing. So for me, and I'm not saying this for any of you, but for me, what I hear God saying to me this morning and this week is, yes, it's still dark. Yes, it's still sub-zero. Yes, Life is not rosy at this moment. Yes, there are still things going on in the people in your life that you wish you could change. Yes, you feel helpless and not able to fix those things that people are going through. But you can know that you can know that you can know that I am still your rock and I am still your shelter and I am still your shield and I am still your source and I am still the one who will love you beyond anything, who will never reject you, who will always support you, who's always in your corner. And if you have nothing else to hold on to, hold on to that, Bob. And even saying those words lifts my spirit. 
and helps pull me out of the because I have someone who loves me someone who cares about me someone who is in my corner what you didn't hear this morning I'll close with from my children from my children's sermon I'll close with that, that now when Jesus was baptized it literally says that the heavens opened and a voice from heaven came and said this is my child I love him he pleases me And the word of God declares that if you have confessed your sins and repented and received God and received Christ as your Savior, you are in right relationship with God. And God declares that you are a child of God. And those same words are spoken over you. You are my child. And I love you. And I am very, very pleased with you. And if that's all you have to take you into this next week, if that's all that you can hold on to, with all of your will, hold on to it and say, God, I'm holding on. And even in the areas where I don't feel like I have enough strength to hold on, you hold me. And get me past this other part where I'm struggling. And I think the words you probably hear from God as you're doing that prayer is are the sick being healed? Are the bills being paid? Have I failed you in any way? Is the gospel still being proclaimed? Have you seen anything about me slip that you can't trust me? If that's If all of the answers to that are no, I haven't, no, I haven't, no, I haven't, then the answer is I'm still the same. I'm still here. And you can trust that I will never, ever, ever leave you. And walk in that. And know. And know that this time will pass. Let's pray.